You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Well, good morning. Uh, If you haven't met me before, my name is Coy. I'm the associate pastor here. I want to ask, what was the last good movie uh, you watched? I remember a few years ago, my wife and I watched this movie called Hidden Figures. 
uh, in the theaters. Actually, it might have been this theater that we watched it in. And it was a story about three African-American women who worked at NASA in the 60s, an extremely challenging time uh, to be both African-American and a woman. Uh, and it was a great movie that showed that their dedication and commitment uh, to change the world as they, they serve as the brains behind one of America's greatest space operations into orbit. And I remember during the credit scenes at the end, uh, it would show the photos of the actual women uh, because as it was based on a true story. I just remember just tears running down my face seeing the photos of these real women. It was just so inspirational. Lena, my wife, of course, turns to me and gives me a weird look and is like, wow, you didn't cry at our wedding, but you cried this. Uh, look, they were just so devoted throughout. Okay, Lena. Uh, I just really loved this movie. It was a great movie. But seriously, there's something that just draws us to these stories, isn't it? These stories of great dedication, these, these stories of enduring devotion, these stories of inspiring commitment. They often speak to our hearts as these stories move us when seeing such a commitment, oftentimes depicting maybe the, the goodness of humanity or maybe displaying a, a loyalty and camaraderie or maybe retelling moments of unprecedented allegiances and pledge keeping, there are some really great stories out there that are centered around these themes. And actually, I think that's why Exodus is one of my favorite books and why it's so, uh, it so easily draws people into its narrative. Because here is a story littered with this theme of devotion and commitment. And we see both the good kind and the bad. As we've already seen so far in Exodus, we've seen an, an overlord committed to his reigning power to the point of subduing an entire nation of people for it. We've seen a woman committed to the safety and well-being of a child found in a river that she'd raise him up as her own. Or as we heard last week, we've heard of a, a God deeply committed to his people as he hears their, their groans and he hears them cry out to him in their slavery. And that's why I love, that's what I love most about this book in Exodus, that as we delve deeper and deeper into Exodus, we'll see more clearly the beauty and devotion of a God who's indeed committed to his people, even when they're not. And in our passage today from Exodus 4, verse, chapter 4, verse 18 to 5, 21, we're going to see this in full view. As our passage revealed to us the commitment of, of varying characters in the story, as we go into Exodus 4, we'll see that it starts off with a huge moment in the Exodus narrative, Moses' return to Egypt. But before we get into it, let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful. We're so thankful for your word in Exodus, Lord. We're so thankful that you are a God who has given us your word. Heavenly Father, may your words remain in my friend's heart today. Take away any words of my own and let it only be yours that challenge, encourage, and convict us in truth, in your beauty, and in your glory. Heavenly Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage starts off today with Moses going to his father-in-law. It says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Miriam, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hands. So Moses comes to Jethro, his father-in-law, to ask uh, the place in which his father-in-law had given him a home all this time where Moses had been in hiding uh, and just gone to him to ask uh, to, that he, he can return to Egypt. Because just before this, Moses had just encountered God through the burning bushes we heard last week. 
with God speaking to Moses, commanding him to return to Egypt, for God will use him to lead the people of Israel. And while Moses, who was not so strong in leading uh, and, and not so strong at speaking, did his best to avoid this with all these hesitations and objections and questions and refusal, thankfully Moses here we read does indeed answer God's call of him to return, to no longer live in this self-imposed exile away from the plight of his people, but to head back to the land of Pharaoh and back to the people of God. And it was kind of nice to see when we read this passage, it's kind of nice to see that, that Moses would actually obey the Lord's call of him after so many attempts not to do it. Because he actually goes ahead and makes the move to head back to Egypt. And now he even tells his father-in-law that he's going back to his own people, which tells us he now identifies with God's people. He no longer considers himself an Egyptian, but a Hebrew. And so Jethro allows Moses to return and God essentially tells Moses uh, it's all safe to go back for all the men who were seeking Moses' life were dead, alleviating any fears for Moses. And essentially what it does is it marks the beginning of the Exodus as the promises of God's words were starting to come true. And so Moses does that. He, he heads back with his immediate family back to the land of Egypt and the Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he would not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Moses, with God's staff in hand, is told to go back to Egypt and to, to do before Pharaoh all the miracles that God had displayed through him as seen in the beginning of chapter 4, so that Pharaoh might see the might and power of this God of Israel. God also says what? He also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart and not let the Israelites go, which can be quite challenging for us to read. And it's something that I'll go a bit, uh, go into, into more depth a little later on in the sermon. But right now, I want to focus in on the words right after this, that God would call Israel his firstborn son. As you may know, I recently became a father and had Elijah dedicated last week, which was wonderful. And I, I remember for pretty much all of Lena's pregnancy, it hadn't yet quite hit me. Um, but there was a moment where after Elijah was born and I was talking to some of my closest friends and I, I could say for the first time, I want to introduce you to my son. And it was just a regular sentence, right? But when I could hear myself say it for the first time, while looking at Elijah, it was actually quite moving and quite special to say that for the first time. But there's something, there's a deep fatherly affection when we see a dad use a term like that, that this is my son, isn't there? And just the same do we see this glimpse of the fatherly love of God to his nation of Israel, where this actually is the first time God's people are described in this way. There's already something meaningful about it at a human level. Now we read it at a God level. And I think it reveals what's at the heart of Exodus, of the Exodus, that God had a deep care, a deep love for his own people. When we read this together with what we've heard so far in Exodus chapter 3, it's clear to see God's commitment to his people. This is the God who says to his firstborn son in chapter 3, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you. And what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
See, the land God is referring to is, of course, the promised land, where in Genesis, God had promised the blessing of uh, the promised land to the father of Israel, Abraham, and his descendants, an inheritance for the people of Israel to establish their nation in a land flowing with milk and honey, as seen in Genesis 17. But it would have been actually extremely hard for the Israelites in Moses' time to envision this while they were held captive, suffering slavery in Egypt, which is why we read last week of their crying out to God. But God, their loving and caring father, hasn't forgotten them. God hears them. Chapter 3, verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. See, this is a God who is undeniably committed to his people, that he would go through all this trouble to rescue this nation out of all nations of the world. And what this shows us is a father who deeply loves his firstborn son, Israel, the first nation to be God's people. We see this beautifully in Hosea 11 as God recalls the Exodus. And he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But we can start to see the bigger picture here, right? That God loves his firstborn Israel, which is why he kept this infant Moses safe on the river. Then when older, encountering Moses at the burning bush and calling Moses to be a part of his divine plan, to be used by God to rescue his firstborn Israel and deliver them into uh, what he had promised them right from the beginning. This is a father devoted to his son. Writer Philip Ryken says, at the very deepest spiritual level, the Exodus is a story about sonship, about a father's love, for his son, only son. Israel's deliverance is the true history of a loving father who rescued his children so that they could be together as a family. Thus, it is not simply a story of emancipation, the release of a slave, but also of repatriation, the return of our only son to his father's loving care. See, what a privilege that is for the Israelites, that they can call, the Almighty, they can call God the Almighty Father. Scripture presents us with an image of God's fatherhood that is unlike any earthly father. Here is a father who is holy, who is good, who is pure and perfect, a rock like no other as described in 1 Samuel 2. Here is a father who gets rejected and taken advantage of by his prodigal children, yet runs to his child with grace and forgiveness as seen in Luke 15. This is a father who, as Matthew 7 says, is good and gives what is good to his children who ask him. See, the God we read here is a father so committed to his firstborn that after failure after failure from his children Israel, he would not turn away from their cries, but will actively pursue them and redeem them. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. See, God is a father like any other who not only loves his children, but is so committed to them that he would deliver them from the clutches of evil so that they would know the greatest possible good, him. And as we continue reading chapter 4, we'll see just how serious he is about it. 
Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So these three verses have been a source of great confusion for scholars throughout history and have raised plenty of questions, such as questions as who is God attacking? How was God about to kill him? Why was God even doing this? And how did Zipporah know what to do? See, because of the ambiguity of the text, there is a lot that we don't know for certain when reading these verses. In fact, scholars have said that this is a passage that is rarely preached and is often avoided throughout history. But I think if we did that today, we would miss out on something really significant, some really significant points in the narrative. So while there are things we don't know, we can focus on what we do know. See, as we had just been prior, as we just read prior these verses before, we have seen that God had made clear the standing between his people, Israel, and those who oppose, Pharaoh. He did so in verse 22 to 23, drawing the line between his firstborn Israel and their deliverance with that of Pharaoh's firstborn and their death. And it's an absolute line drawn by God. It's God's people, his firstborn, who will be delivered and liberated by the almighty God and it's Pharaoh and the Egyptians who later, as we'll see in Exodus, will be punished by death. There are two sides to be on. See, author Tim Chester says, on one side are grace and life, on the other side are judgment and death. There is no middle ground or third option. And so what does that have to do with these verses here? Well, God is marking out his dividing line, and he does so here through circumcision. See, during this time, a circumcision was the distinguishing mark of God's people. It was a sign of the covenant, of God's covenant with his people, a covenant made all the way back with Abraham, Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. See, through this sign, it indicated the the covenant community of God's people, Israel, as truly God's people. That those circumcised were members of this covenant community. Riken calls it a proof of sonship in Israel. It's like a son taking his father's surname today that shows that he's his father's son. And so with this sign of circumcision, it deemed the man and his family part of God's covenantal family. This was an important thing for those in the nation of Israel. It was a requirement as part of the covenant promise between the patriarch father Abraham and the heavenly father God. And it was important because it essentially places those with it on the side of their father where there is grace and life, while those outside of the covenant were on the other side, the side of judgment and death. There is no middle ground or third option. So with this now in view, we look at verses 24 and 26 26, and can gather that Moses had made a grave mistake. As Moses didn't circumcise one of his sons, a covenant obligation for those as firstborns of God, and what this event on the way to Egypt indicates to us and reveals to us is that God is committed to his covenant. Whatever motivation or reason Moses had for not taking seriously this covenantal sign, we won't know. But what we do know 
is that Moses' failure to keep the covenant nearly cost him his life. So we see God takes very seriously the covenant relationship he has with his people. God is committed to his covenant and expects his people to be the same. And especially somebody like Moses, who God had planned to use to lead the nation of Israel in their deliverance. Again, Riken says, if, he was, if Moses was going to lead the people out of Egypt, he himself had to keep the covenant. How could he be Israel's prophet if he neglected his spiritual responsibility to his own family by failing to include them in God's salvation? Now, some of us might be feeling a little bewildered at the moment and totally understandable. I mean, we just read of a God whose commitment to his firstborn uh, describes for us a deep affection and fatherly love from him. Yet here we so quickly see this description change from a fatherly love to what looks like a, a condemning judge. That the Lord is willing to kill Moses for this is especially baffling as we have just read of God's patience in convincing Moses to be part of his plan. But when we read these verses of God here, I don't think it should deter us from seeing a good and loving God. But if anything, it points us even more to how good and loving he is because of his deep commitment to his covenant. So recently, Lena and I have had the privilege of leading a pre-marriage counselling course with a close couple here at church. And it's been quite a joyous experience because I just love it when the couple will have those moments where they discover things about each other, things that they uh, didn't realise or they discover something new or things that they didn't previously pick on. And there's a lot of laughs and a lot of joy and it's wonderful. But what's especially great about it is seeing their eyes light up when we talk about the purpose of marriage the wonderful gift of two people becoming one with a profound commitment to each other centred in the gospel. I love hearing their practical ways on how they'll display a loving faithfulness, a dedication, a commitment to each other in all sorts of circumstances, that it's a covenant with one another. And that's exactly it, isn't it? A marriage covenant is deep and a sign between two people that they are committed to one another. And it's a display of greater love when they are faithful, when they are dedicated to each other. And this is a beautiful picture of a covenant relationship, a covenant promise. And so in the covenant by God made to Abraham in Genesis 17, God says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So in this covenant, God promised Abraham many descendants. He promised an abundant land. But what I think stands out the most is what he promises at the end, that I will be their God. This is a wonderfully simple yet beautiful promise to God's people. He has chosen his people. I just love that at the heart of this covenant made to Abraham and his descendants is that God will be the God of his people. To the nation Israel, he will be their God. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob who had delivered them and will now deliver firstborn, his firstborn Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh is deeply committed to his covenant for, with them for he is their God. 
and they are his chosen people. God is with them. God is for them. And this is evident in what we've read so far in Exodus, that God had a plan of deliverance for his people, and he will indeed do this, for he is their God. So with this clearer picture of this God and his commitment to his covenant promise with his people, we can see why Moses' inaction in verses 24 to 26 was a matter of life and death. While it might read as quite extreme from God, that it almost cost Moses his life, I think it actually reveals God in a better light than worse because it means we have a God who keeps his promises. God had every right to not hear and respond to the cries of Israel. I mean, the very reason Israel were in Egypt in the first place was by their own sin with Joseph being sold by his brothers. God could have easily turned his back and said, you put yourself into this situation, you get yourselves out. And he would have been right in doing so. You know why? Because he's God. But what we see is a God so full of love, a God so full of grace that he will hear, he'll remember, and he will act to keep his covenant. We read of a God who keeps his promises, who can be trusted, who is faithful, who is worthy of worship. It affirms even more how good a father God is to his children that he will never forsake them. See, God's people are on the side of grace and life. And they can be certain of this because of their Lord who was faithful to his promises. And so in verse 27 to 31, as we continue, as Moses and Aaron reunite after God had told Aaron to go out to him, they gathered the elders of Israel together with Moses showing the miraculous signs from God, which God had told him to do. And the people believed and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Here's a picture. Here was a jubilant firstborn son, Israel, for their father did not forgive, forget, forget them or his covenant promise. But there was one person who was not so excited to hear from this God. As we keep reading chapter 5, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So here in Exodus 5, Moses and Aaron are at the presence, in the presence of Pharaoh, the most powerful person in Egypt, and they proclaim that the Lord Yahweh, God's personal name as seen in Exodus 3, the God of Israel, says this, let my people go. But to Pharaoh, it's clear that this name means nothing. Who is Yahweh to him? Why should I listen to him? I've never heard of him. I mean, Pharaoh is the superpower of the greatest empire at the time. Nobody ought to be telling him what to do. See, Pharaoh is, is a dedicated man. He knows where he stands in the food chain. Nobody could contest him. And chapter 5 makes clear that here was a man committed to oppose the God of the Israelites. And this would be the running theme throughout the next few chapters, a powerful force in Pharaoh defying the God of Israel as he continuously challenges, who is this Lord? Which we'll see over the next few weeks, God responds and shows you exactly who this Lord is. 
But here in chapter 5, Pharaoh hears of this Lord Yahweh for the first time and in his egotistical, arrogant showing of defiance and opposition, he makes things worse for the Israelites. Verse 6, the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And in verse 9, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labour at it and pay no regard to lying words. See, while before straw was provided for the Israelite slaves to work with and make brick bricks, now they'll have to go out and collect their own straw too, yet still requiring to make the same number of bricks that they used to, uh, that they had to before. So this essentially what it was, was a near impossible task that Pharaoh had imposed on them, making the lives of the Israelites 10 times harder in his commitment to oppose the God Yahweh. See, in his utmost defiance and display of harsh power, Pharaoh really revealed how much of an enemy to God he was. And yet, this should come as no surprise to to Moses, to Aaron, or to us. Look at what was said in Exodus chapter 3. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. See, God had told Moses already at the burning bush that he knows Pharaoh will not let Israel go unless God intervenes. The Lord is not surprised by Pharaoh's refusal to listen. But not only that, not only did he predict it in Exodus 3, But as we read earlier, he seems to ordain it. Again, chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So when we read this verse, it can be quite jarring as it almost seems like God isn't playing fairly because it's one thing to read that God foreknew that Pharaoh wouldn't budge on letting the Israelites go. But it's another thing when the reason for Pharaoh's refusal is because God made him refuse, that God would be the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart. It brings up this complex tension between a human free will and God's sovereignty. And this hardened heart of Pharaoh's is, is an ongoing theme in the following chapters where on one hand, the passage says that God was behind Pharaoh's hardening of heart. Then in another few verses, it will say that Pharaoh was complicit in the hardening of his own heart. And in other places, it simply states that Pharaoh's heart was hardened without saying who did it. It's a challenging thing to grapple with. They almost sound like they contradict each other, don't they? And yet, I don't think they're contradictory in any sense, but actually have an interwovenness with one another. A divine hardening and a self-hardening. I think if, if we were to imagine God hardening the heart of, uh, of Pharaoh in the way of creating evil in, within his heart, then many, many problems would arise from that. That God would go about accomplishing his divine plan by making Pharaoh's sin is inconsistent with the God we read about in Scripture, who is good, who is righteous, who is just, who in Psalm 145 says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. It it would be contradictory for this same good God to force Pharaoh to sin and then punish him for that, essentially making him the, the author of sin, which is completely counter to how he's described in the Bible. But if we were to think about who man is, 
the core of humanity and what's in our hearts, we'd see that humanity is sinful and totally depraved. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ecclesiastes 9 says, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. So I think for God to harden Pharaoh's heart, he wouldn't need to create a fresh evil in it. But as Martin Luther says on this theme, God would merely need to withhold his own grace. He simply gives a person over to himself. I think for God to harden the heart of Pharaoh, he simply gives Pharaoh over to his already evil desires. Pharaoh, although believing he was himself a God, Pharaoh was undeniably a sinner. R.C. Sproul says on God hardening Pharaoh's heart, all God has to do is remove his hands and give Pharaoh all the space he needs. That is how Pharaoh's heart is passively hardened, which is itself a just act of divine judgment upon him. See, we remember that Pharaoh was a man deeply committed to opposing God. As God shows his mighty hand through the plagues to come, Pharaoh's heart becomes more increasingly set in its ways more hardened in sin as he chooses to defy God deeper and deeper, more hardened as God gives him over over to his ways. See, Pharaoh determines Pharaoh's actions by hardening his heart. And God determines Pharaoh's actions by hardening his heart. Both are true. Tim Chester says, Pharaoh freely chooses to do what God had freely chosen that he would do. See, the picture we'll get of Pharaoh and his hardened heart over the next few chapters is like watching a a slow-motion video of a disaster happening right in front of our eyes. Pharaoh just never backs down. He keeps rejecting God, defying God, even after God shows his mighty hand each time. He keeps defying God and Pharaoh's heart becomes more hardened each time, hardened, hardened, hardened. And that's what sin does. It deceives us. See, at our Easter service a few weeks ago, I briefly shared how there was a time in my life where I rejected uh, God. And it started with something small, such as uh, distancing myself a bit from church friends. Then it led to stop going to church in general. Then it became living how I wanted to live. Then it became justifying myself living in my desires. Then it became not caring about what others thought and actually hurting people along the way which eventually led to, again, my atheist friend not believing that I could ever possibly be a Christian. It started out with a small rejection of God, but then it unraveled, going deeper and deeper, further and further into more sin until I was unrecognisable to many. My heart became more hardened over time, more defiant to God. And it was only by the grace of God that he brought me back, reminding me through his people, the wonderful verse, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we are not immune to a hardened heart. Sin is deceitful. And yet as we look to our passage today, in our passage, there is actually more going on here with Pharaoh's hardened heart 
See, while still mysterious to the human mind in how God works in all of this, there's actually a clear reason in God doing all this. See, the Apostle Paul, when himself thinking about Pharaoh's heart and heart, thinking about this passage on Pharaoh's heart and heart, Paul says in Romans, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, the whole aim of this wasn't to bring up a debate on free will and predestination here, but rather point more narrowly to the God Yahweh and his display of his mighty power and his glory. See, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh, the Egyptians, Moses, Aaron, the Israelites, all the earth will see and know that this is the God who says, I am the Lord, that there is none like him, that this is the great I am. If anything, what God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart does is affirm even more the other two points, that God is truly committed to his people that, and that he's committed to his covenant promises. So committed is God that he'd use an evil man's hard-heartedness to display his glory and power to his firstborn Israel. So committed is God that not even the most powerful man in Egypt could thwart God's promise of deliverance to Israel and the words to them, and I will be their God. See, when Pharaoh uses the words work or serve or servants when enforcing the Israelites with more work, uh, these words have the same Hebrew root word as the word worship. And God, using Moses, goes to Pharaoh and says, let my son go so that they may serve me, so that they may worship me. So the point that is revealed to us is this. Israel will work, will serve, will worship somebody. The question is, who will they serve? While Pharaoh does whatever he can to make sure it is him who they serve. It is him who they worship. God's sovereign hand in all of this is that his firstborn would serve him, would worship him and him alone. That even though Pharaoh might be completely committed to opposing the Lord God, Yahweh, God has made it clear that the deliverance of Israel from Egypt is entirely God's doing and under his complete control. The impending exodus is a play in which God is author producer, director, and principal actor. The purpose of 421 then is further confirmation of what we've seen earlier in chapter 4, that God is with Moses and with Israel. Again, we read of a God deeply committed to his people, faithfully committed to his promises. And now we'll see and read Israel's commitment to him. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. In the hardship of the new work laws enforced on the Israelites, 
The slaves simply could not keep up this impossible task. So the Israelite foremen who, who uh, directed and spoke for the Israelite masses were beaten by the Egyptian taskmasters and, and, and questioned as to why couldn't they keep up all this work? Why couldn't the slaves keep doing it? And so the foremen go to Pharaoh complaining and crying out of the unfairness of this all, which Pharaoh in his opposition disregards them completely, telling them to stop being idle, stop being lazy, you guys. And it's quite saddening. It's really, really saddening. It's quite frustrating to see the Israelites' response to this, that they'd go to Moses and Aaron and blame them for being unfairly treated by Pharaoh, even asking the Lord to judge Moses and Aaron. To think, not that long ago, these were the same Israelites when hearing all that the Lord would do for them through Moses that the Lord their God sees their affliction and will deliver them from Egypt. These same Israelites, they celebrated. They bowed their heads. They worshipped him. But now what do we see? Things got harder. God's deliverance plan didn't match theirs. And so they complain. They get upset. Israel's response is so disappointing because we've just read of a God so committed to them, yet they're grumbling, they're complaining, their entitlement, lack of trust, lack of faith shows clearly their commitment to God. Well, actually, it reveals their lack of commitment to God. And it's a sad sight to see. But it shouldn't be all that surprising because even though these were God's chosen people, his firstborn, they were still sinners, just like Pharaoh, just like us. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, Israel's commitment to God can make us shake our heads with great, with great disappointment. But theirs is a picture just like ours. I've lost count of the times I've celebrated God's promises when things are good, you know, bow down to him in love and praise, worship him for his glory and faithfulness. Yet as soon as things don't go according to plan, as in according to my plan, when trouble arises on the way, I become grumbly to God, complaining, upset, feeling entitled, lacking trust, lacking faith. How often does that reveal my lack of commitment to God, that just like the Israelites, I adore the blessings of God rather than God himself? See, for the Israelites, their response truly revealed their sinful hearts. But thankfully for them, this wasn't the end of their story. But they have a God, while they were not committed, they have a God who is faithfully committed to them and his promises. And out of God's grace, he will deliver them. And just as it is for all of us, for all sinners, that this isn't the end of our story. But we have a God who is faithfully committed to us, that out of his love and amazing grace, he sent his son, Jesus, to deliver us from the punishment of sin, death. As promised by him, Matthew 1 says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. See, when we read these chapters in Exodus and see the God of Israel as a father to his firstborn son, we can be certain that he is committed to his people. Why? Because later on, God would give up his actual one and only son on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind, tearing down the barrier between creator and saviour, reconciled only by the work of the saviour, Jesus. That once an exclusive nation chosen by God as his firstborn son now has been made a reality to every nation, that all whom believe in Jesus can come to the Lord as a child and call him Father. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, this is a Father who didn't leave us, but through Jesus actively pursued us and gave himself up, that we may all receive the greatest good we could know, him. This is a God indeed committed to his covenant, that when he said to Abraham, he said to Abraham, by you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God all the way in the beginning had in view Jesus, that he that Jesus would be the descendant of Abraham, who all who believed in him would be heirs to the promise of Abraham, as said in Galatians 3. See, to the believer of Christ, to the Christian, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has chosen us as his own and has promised us that he will be our God, that he will not turn away from doing good to us, but by his spirit he will reside in us that we may have life in him. The promises of God are sure, for he is faithful. See, while we as sinners may oftentimes be like the Israelites and wilt or be uncommitted to our God, don't wallow and despair. But come repentantly to the feet of our loving and merciful Father as the children we are. And remember the God whose promises are sure that we have received grace and life in Jesus. For we have a wonderful saviour who is committed to us. First John 4, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that out of your love, we can call you Father. You are the God who is committed to your people, the Father who hears us, who pursues us, who loves us, who delivers us. You are the God who is committed to your promises. Lord, you are faithful and trustworthy. You, are, you have not forgotten us, but you had promised us a saviour who would come and deliver us from the bondage of sin. And you are faithful to your promise as you gave your one and only son, Jesus, who has moved us from the side of death into the wonder of grace and life. By his blood, we are made clean. By his sacrifice, we approach you freely as our father. And by your grace, we are called your children. God, you are so good to us and you're worthy to be praised. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.
thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.